You're listening to Faith for Normal People, the only other God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Well, folks, this is the last call for our June summer school class, Not Kirk Cameron's Apocalypse, a more robust and colorful look at the end times described in John's Revelation. That is a long time. It's longer than my book title. Have we asked Kirk Cameron if this is not his apocalypse? I don't know if we've, we've actually asked him. Yeah, that's a good point, we're but making it's too late because we've been yeah. advertising this, this so we're going to go Okay, with well, this. let's carry anyway, on. Anyway, it's taught by Dr. Lynn R. Huber. And the class is going to be live on June 28th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Put it on the calendar, folks. And it's going to cover defining what an apocalypse is and isn't, who wrote Revelation, and why the author uses apocalyptic imagery. How have people read Revelation throughout history? And of course, there'll be a lot more. A lot more. And this class is pay what you can, as always, for a couple more days, and then it'll cost 25 bucks to download. So head to thebiblefornormalpeople.com slash summer school to sign up. And for those of you who want extra credit, you can buy a hall pass, which gets you all three courses in this 2023 summer school series here, not Kirk Cameron's Apocalypse, Heaven and Hell in Black Theology, and Universal Salvation is Not Modern, plus a fun little bonus gift for your support. So again, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash summer school. Folks, today on Faith for Normal People, we're talking about belief and the brain with Sarah Lane Ritchie. Yep, and Sarah is a former lecturer in theology and science at the University of Edinburgh. Right, and don't forget to stay tuned at the end of the episode for Quiet Time, where we reflect on the conversation and connect Sarah's research to our own lives. And I think there will be a lot to connect around. If we understand it. Oh my goodness, we'll have to have her back on or somebody more more conversation. All right, folks, let's get into this great conversation with Sarah Lane Ritchie. You do have indirect ways of directing or or having some say in what you believe, but it's not just rational. It's a whole body thing. This is not just a, a sort of like a logical proof that you write out on a piece of paper. This involves deep commitment to a community, relationships, some sort of engagement with a sacred text, perhaps, and the right sorts of experiences. You have to have your emotion involved. Introducing Bluehost Cloud ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work. And just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, welcome, Sarah, to the podcast. It's great to have you. I'm, I'm so looking forward to jumping into what is sure to be a nerdy topic. <laughs> well, I am very happy to be here and always happy to nerd out. <laughs> well, let's jump right in because today we're going to talk about the cognitive science of religion. And I think that's probably going to be a new term for a lot of folks. So can you just tell us what that is? When did it begin? What are the questions that it's trying to answer? Sure. So put simply, the cognitive science of religion is this scientific study of 
how humans became religious, how and why we started forming religious beliefs at some point in our evolutionary past, what sorts of gods or God we started believing in and why we would have started believing in those types of gods. It looks at what sorts of experiences and rituals and communities and beliefs may have supported uh, continued belief in God. And so really, it's just a scientific study of like how religion came to be in the world. So cognitive science of religion, like how is that different from, say, neuroscience or psychology or anthropology? And the short answer there is that it's complicated. Cognitive science of religion is sort of a catch-all term to describe the study of religion from a bunch of different angles. So you have psychologists looking at it, anthropologists who are looking at sort of the rituals and communities that formed uh, human society as we now know it, Uh, and a little bit of neuroscience, but there's a big difference between neuroscience and cognitive science. So the metaphor I like to use is uh, around cars. So say you have a really awesome sports car, and you want to understand what makes that sports car the sports car that it is. One approach is to lift up the hood and look at the nuts and the bolts and all the individual pieces and try and figure out how they connect together. That's sort of what neuroscience is. Neuroscience is looking at the neurons and the synapses and basically the neurochemistry of what's happening in the physical brain. They don't really get to sort of the larger, more what I think are more interesting questions about how that like hardware in our brain translates to the meaningful transcendent experiences that we have, the sorts of complex beliefs that we've formed about God and each other. And so with the car analogy, cognitive science of religion is acknowledging the importance of the parts under the hood, but also wanting to understand how those parts translate into an incredible driving experience, the acceleration and the color, the smell, like the feel of the engine, right? So CSR, we can call it CSR for cognitive science of religion, is trying to do something a bit more, is a bit bigger and more complex, trying to get at the full human experience of religion and not just looking at the nuts and bolts of what's happening in our brains. You mentioned something before that might spark some thoughts in our listeners and frankly in me as well. The role of evolution in the development of, I guess, religious experience could you just unpack that a little bit? Because that is, that's going to sound a bit new for many of us. So there are a couple different ways of uh, trying to understand the evolution of religion. And there are many different theories about this. One way of looking at it is trying to understand how people may have started having religious experiences. So we do know that people throughout history have had very powerful religious experiences. And those experiences have changed their lives. And the content of those experiences sort of like what kind of God they're experiencing, what the quality of those experiences are, that changes from person to person. But religious experiences have been recorded throughout human history. So the evolutionary study of religion wants to look at the way that those religious experiences might have intersected with other natural evolutionary processes to result in religious communities and rituals and doctrine. So cognitive science of religion, these scholars will often look at, for example, the ways that religious beliefs might be a byproduct of the ways that our minds naturally work. For example, throughout uh, human evolution, our brains would have devised for us, our minds would have devised for us ways of coping and surviving in the world. And that, in many contexts, has meant needing to be overly cautious about our environments. So, there's this idea that's come up in CSR around agency detection. The core idea here is that if you're walking in a forest at night and you hear a branch snap in the woods, you're going to be very well suited to think that an agent, so another human, caught like broke that branch and there's a tiger or a human coming to stalk you and hunt you. Because if you attribute agency to that sound, you're more likely to get the heck out of there and run to safety more likely to survive another day. And so CSR theorists want to say something like, okay, the propensity in the human mind to attribute agency to things in the natural world, to assume a mind behind the natural world, may have been a natural byproduct of what it took for us to survive. So when there's a drought or a famine or a flood, perhaps we were well-suited to think that, hmm, Maybe a divine being, a God, caused that drought because of something we did wrong, something like that. 
And I'll just mention the other uh, very popular theory in CSR is the adaptation theory. And this is saying, hey, God's not a byproduct. God helped us to evolve. God is a, a helpful idea for us as humans to absorb and to work with because it makes us better people. So if you think there's a big God in the sky who's watching everything that you're doing, you're much more likely to not steal from your neighbor, to be kind to the people in your community, because you have an external reason to avoid divine punishment or earn divine favor. So there's like the byproduct approach and the adaptation approach. And then this third approach is sort of wanting to integrate those two with the reality that people have had these dramatic religious experiences throughout history. And they're trying to come up with a cumulative picture of how all of that resulted in the very religious people that we are today. I think it probably is worth taking a step back. We've jumped to two different things that I think it may take a little bit of time to for people to process. So I want to go back to even the very beginning of what is the cognitive science of, of religion and that difference between neuroscience and cognitive science where, yeah, I just think that's a big concept for people who who really don't have uh, an understanding of these categories where neuroscience with these nuts and bolts uh, approach are really looking at the biological mechanics of how a brain works and how a brain functions. But then cognitive science of religion really takes into account this added ingredient of consciousness, which is our experience of this stuff as humans, which isn't accounted for in the the way the brain works. Is that another way of saying it? Yes, absolutely. It takes into account our values, our communities, our relationships, our rituals, our practices. And those are all things that neuroscience doesn't do too well with. So cognitive science of religion is sort of taking on board the whole human, the whole community. So then from there, so if we're going to take all of those and not just look at the nuts and bolts of our brain function, but look at how a religion has been shaped and how it's come to be and how it currently expresses itself, there's these different theories of how that came to be or what the influences were evolutionarily, sort of how did it come to be that we did this kind of thing? And I go back to it because I think it's a new way of thinking for folks who maybe haven't ever had the thought that that would even need to happen. Because again, for me growing up, these were questions that didn't need to be asked because it was sort of like, you're just down. Like there was Adam and Eve who had an obvious relationship. Evolution wasn't on the table really. Right. Adam and Eve had a relationship with God and that's how we know there's a God is because Adam and Eve were created by God and had an intimate relationship with God. And then that just got passed down from generation to generation. And so I just think it's a new concept how do you square those two things for people where they may have moved beyond, say, a, a literal reading of, of Adam and Eve, but the vestiges of that are still there in some sort of way? They're still trying to hold on to their religious faith. And yet what you're saying around agency, right, that maybe we evolved to sense agency and then maybe that got in some ways maybe a almost we got overactive in our agency detection and started attributing agency to things that maybe don't have agency like floods or rains. And we attribute that to God. That seems to be pushing a God figure or divine figure out of the reality, right? How would you talk to someone who's sort of like getting their mind blown and these things are kind of in conflict? Right. So when people are first exposed to cognitive science of religion, especially if they've come from a religious background, the first response is often one of extreme anxiety. I certainly was one of these people. I'm like, all right, if science can explain how religious belief evolved, then therefore everything I ever have ever believed about God and everything I've ever wanted to believe about God is completely false. That is a very normal first response. And thankfully, people have done a lot of work in this area, philosophers and theologians, and even scientists themselves. So what you're getting at, Jared, is the naturalness thesis. So this is the sort of upshot of all of cognitive science of religion. It's this claim that at the end of the day, religion is very natural, but it's a double-edged sword, this naturalness thing, right? So on one hand, it can make people very, very anxious. So if religion is natural, if there are understandable mechanisms in evolution that would have resulted in us believing the things that we believe, then doesn't that believe that none of this is true? But it, it goes the other way. And this is where the hope, I think, comes in. Because if you believe in some sort of God or ultimate reality that can act creatively in the world through evolution, theistic evolution or some variety of that, 
then wouldn't you expect humans to have evolved with the capacity to understand and know and interact with God? Wouldn't we need to have naturally evolved the capacity to form the sorts of beliefs that we have? And so these people, Justin Barrett is a big proponent of this. He's actually the leading figure in cognitive science of religion. And his sort of bottom line here is like, why is it a problem for religion to be natural? We should be encouraged by that because it means that God was, I don't want to use the word design, but God was um, in some way active in the process of evolution to end up to sort of lead humans to be the sorts of creatures that were capable of this remarkable religious relationship and existence in the world. Sarah, do you think that we need to, in light of what you just said, which I find fascinating and actually pretty encouraging, to be honest, but words like revelation, a revealed religion and things like that, do we need to rethink those concepts? Like, you know, authority, revelation, inspiration, key words that a lot of people have used to talk about Christian religious experience, at least. It seems like we have to think differently about those terms. Is that right? So, cognitive science of religion only gets you so far. So, it can explain why we might be predisposed to forming religious beliefs, but it says very little about metaphysics. So it says very little about how God is acting uh, in the world or how God might be revealing God's self to humanity and the rest of creation. And it sort of just describes how the building blocks and the architecture of our minds came to be how they are. It kind of describes the necessary grounds for then developing all of the theology and having the sorts of experiences that lead to a revealed understanding of God. I would say that here we can actually downplay the importance of cognitive science of religion. It might tell us why we are religious, but it doesn't necessarily tell us like how God then interacts with us or very much at all about any particular doctrinal content. What I'm hearing is uh, that the cognitive science of religion can't actually address the nature of revelation or inspiration or authority. That's Those are different categories, you know, recognizing the limitations of a great theory. Mm-hmm. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction (laughs) level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, And it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to 
upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. So then maybe that's a good segue into another question, which is then when we're talking about belief, religious belief, what are we talking about? Because I think we use words like cognitive science of religion are using words like our capacity for belief, but then things like what we actually believe about revelation or inspiration or those things aren't covered by the cognitive science of religion. So what when cognitive science of religion proponents or scientists talk about belief, what are they talking about? This is a huge area of debate. I think most people in the pews will take one of two directions, right, with religious belief. If you ask someone, what is religious belief? They might say, well, it's just what I know to be true. I just know this in my heart. I know I just have this. I just have it, right? Other people, other traditions might say, well, you choose what you believe. You have to sort of make a commitment in order to get access to religious belief, right? And then amongst people like theologians and philosophers who work on this stuff, There's huge debate. There's no scientific or philosophical consensus about whether or not beliefs are something that just appear to you to be real, of just like kind of land on you. And you're like, ah, well, this is true about the world. Or if these religious beliefs can be chosen, like, do you have any agency at all in what you believe? Or is really belief just something that appears true to you? So there's actually a huge psychological disagreement on this and philosophical disagreement on it. My view on this is somewhere in the middle. So the research I've done suggests that you can't directly choose what you believe, but you do have a ton of agency uh, when it comes to putting yourself in the sorts of communities, engaging in the sorts of practices, and exposing yourself to particular sorts of experiences that will make particular beliefs like God become more true to you. And then we're getting into like neuroplasticity stuff. But I would say that the hopeful aspect of all of this research is that you do have indirect ways of directing or or having some say in what you believe, but it's not just rational. It's a whole body thing. This is not just a, a sort of like a logical proof that you write out on a piece of paper. This involves deep commitment to a community, relationships, some sort of engagement with a sacred text, perhaps. And the right sorts of experiences, you have to have your emotion involved. And that's not always very popular in churches today, but it is really important that your emotions and your relational experiences with God and others are being activated, that those things make beliefs stronger. Yeah, that's directly opposed to what I was taught as a kid. But our emotions are a part of us. I was told to bracket out my emotions. Yeah, because who cares about those? Those are going to get in the way of true beliefs. Those don't even make us human. <laughs> hey, um, Sarah, can I a- ask a question here? Um, a term that you've used, embodied belief or something like re- religious belief is embodied. And that sounds like a very important concept. Could you sort of weave that into what we're talking about here in CSR? Yeah. So we might be uh, conscious animals, but we are animals. We are creatures. We are, uh, we are not just brains existing in like a box somewhere. Our consciousness, there's so much research now on how our perception of the world, our conscious experience of the world is directly tied to what our our hands, our bodies, our feet, our senses are experiencing in the world. And that isn't just about our immediate physical environment. It's also about the relational engagements we're having. It's also about music and art. It's about the way that we move our body in the world. Like everything from like dancing to sports to exercise, all of these things affect our cognition, affect our emotional experiences. And it's just not scientifically the case that beliefs occur in some disembodied, rational deliberation process. You just deconstructed my entire seminary experience. (laughs) Thank you. Well, and I think that's important because it's, again, to highlight maybe all of our past experiences it was the idea that we have to bracket all these things out, which, you know, the way you've explained it and the way I've kind of understood is it's not just that that's a bad way to do it. It is an impossibility. And all of those things are already present. We just aren't recognizing, which is for me, the more dangerous thing that we're not allowing those things to inform it. That's exactly right. And you see this so clearly. I'm just going to pick in megachurches. Uh, you see this so clearly in megachurches. Because in many of these sort of conservative evangelical traditions, 
they will absolutely say, your emotions are bad. Do not trust your heart. Do not trust your emotions. Do not trust your body, but come to these worship services. And then you go to these worship services. And what you find is the most aesthetically complex scenario that you find almost anywhere in culture. You have mood lighting, you have four chord worship songs that go on endlessly in a rhythmic, repetitive way. You have people swaying and moving. In some of these situations, you have speaking in tongues, laying out of hands, like you have extremely like touch-oriented experiences. So it is disingenuous for most churches to say that they are not utilizing some tacit knowledge of the embodiment of human experience. They might not say that's what they're doing. They might not say they're manipulating people, but they absolutely are using what I call spiritual technologies, stuff in the world that enhances our spiritual experiences. I want to go back to, because of that, like things that enhance our spiritual experiences. And it it ties back to the conversation we were having a minute ago about agency and how much do we have control over our beliefs and commitments. There's a large degree by which when and where we're born, our own makeup and our family situations and things will put us in a lane, so to speak, that we don't have a lot of choice over. But then you said that there's places where we have ton of agency and you talked about neuroplasticity. Can you talk more about neuroplasticity and how that fits into this idea? Because I think a lot of people, when they come out of, say, a more conservative theological tradition, this is a new idea that it's almost like, oh, I thought all the time that I was choosing this, but it actually was because my parents were this. And like, I didn't really have a lot of agency as a six-year-old being asked to say a prayer because I'd done the thing every single week. But then as we get older, how do we claim that agency while also recognizing, because I think it's an important part to recognize the parts where we don't have as much agency as we think we do. How do we navigate that? So on the scientific side of things, the most remarkable body of research, I think, that's been happening in the last couple of decades is this recognition that our brains don't determine our reality in a static way. It's not just that we got a certain brain, we had a certain background, and therefore our spiritual futures are set. What is instead the case is that there are indirect ways to affect what we believe and affect our spiritual experiences and our understanding and like kind of interpersonal knowledge of God. And that occurs because our brains are plastic. They are extremely malleable. So there are different dimensions of this. I'll just name three, but all kind of pointing at this reality that what we do with our bodies in the world affects how we actually perceive the world, affects how our brains perceive reality. One aspect of this is repetition. Things that we do over and over and over again. So for example, any religious ritual that's paired with some content, like God is a loving God, for example. The more we engage in that ritual, the more likely we are to believe that that thing is true. Another thing is emotional salience. So how gripped are we by something? And this is actually why I ha- while I have a ton of critiques for the evangelical scene, I also do not want to give up on the things that they've done well. It is extremely important to capture emotionally intense and emotionally rich experiences, especially religious and spiritual ones. So I actually think it's fine to cultivate religious experiences in our own lives. And then the third thing is attention. Where are we directing our focus and attention? When we pay attention to something, when we focus on something, it becomes more real to us. And this is where it comes back around to Pete's question about tradition and authority. Let's say that you, for whatever reason, find yourself just not believing in God anymore, or you don't find yourself believing in the sort of God that you want to believe in. This is where you can start using your mind and your tradition in your community to sort of help you. So for example, religious belief has never come easy to me. Never. I've always struggled to experience God in a way that felt real. Uh, I've been very open about this and it's kind of driven all of my research. But what I noticed is that the people whose lives and characters were the most gripping for me and the people I most wanted to be like They just happened to be Christians. I was lucky. I know that's not the case for everybody. (laughs) And I found that the more I exposed myself to those sorts of people, and the more that I focused on the things that were working for them, the more that I engaged in the practices that they were engaged in, the more my own spiritual sensitivity and the spiritual possibilities for me grew. And so it can be a real pathway of hope to recognize that your brain does not determine everything for you and that your agency in the world 
even just by choosing the sorts of people you're hanging out with, what you're reading, what the kind of music you're listening to, these things actually really can affect your spiritual possibilities. I have an odd question here that fits within this larger realm. I'm not sure if it fits here, but when we talk about, you know, I just have had many friends over the last year or two talk about the enlightening experiences of going on trips, mushrooms, that kind of psychedelics. How does that fit within this neuroplasticity conversation in terms of opening people up to new experiences? Because that's a thing I hear the most in light of these experiences. Yeah, so um, this is actually one of my main research focuses at the moment. So I've done a lot of work in the past on what I call spiritual technologies. And again, that's just anything that we're using outside of our bodies or things like meditation to directly impact our spiritual formation, our spiritual lives. And so I've been working on the psychedelics research team for quite some time, and the research results are really incredible. Uh, So your listeners may well know that there's been a huge resurgence in psychedelic research treating like PTSD and depression, anxiety and smoking cessation, all these kind of physical and mental struggles that people suffer with. And one of the interesting outcomes of these studies has been that people who have these psychedelic experiences will decades later rate those experiences as the most meaningful and transformative moments of their entire lives. And it changes the entire way they view the world. And so more and more sort of non-scientist scholars have been getting into this area and wanting to look at ways of like harnessing that and treating it appropriately, not just giving everybody acid, not just handing out mushrooms at concerts, but really taking it seriously, taking the possibility seriously that people can trust themselves, trust God enough to have the sorts of experiences that they might have. And they can structure these trips in a way that is extremely responsible. You can use sacred music of some form as sort of like the background experience. You have a spiritual intention for the experience. It can be an excellent tool to help people get out of their stuckness, help people get access to an experience of the transcendent, an experience of God that can really change their lives. And then they take that experience and once they've had that raw, intense experience of what they call love or God or ultimate reality, they then start building up the scaffolding around that in the rest of their lives to make it a robust spiritual practice. So you'll hear people describe how a psychedelic experience was their gateway drug to meditation. I think it's a brilliant insight that sometimes people just really need to have a powerful encounter with God. And we we don't really um, emphasize that very much in progressive circles these days. And I think that's unfortunate, but there's nothing, you know, sometimes nothing can beat just putting people in touch with a loving ultimate reality and psychedelics. They tend to do that. So I hope I'm using the right language here. The manipulation of our brain chemistry through psychedelics does not in and of itself support the notion that religious experience is simply the manipulation of our brain chemistry, right? We're we're back to that same issue of the science can only go so far. That's right. And what I always like to point out to people is that you don't have a choice about manipulating yourself. Every day, you are manipulating yourself. Every time you go to a movie that is moving or a sports game or to listen to some powerful music, You are choosing to manipulate yourself by giving yourself an experience that is meaningful to you. And so it's not a question of whether or not we're manipulating ourselves, but the question of how we're directing our ability to give ourselves certain sorts of experiences. And so I certainly encourage like caution and responsibility and following the law, all of that. But yeah, so we're just getting back to the cognitive science of religion stuff. So we are human bodies who are predisposed for whatever reason to form beliefs about God and to have experiences of God. And in our current climate, it's actually quite difficult to find those experiences of God, to access them because our brains are, we are in a very particular sort of 21st century modern environment and our brains don't really get out of the repetitive patterns that we get into very often. So psychedelics are one tool. They're not like a surefire way to experience God. You have to do a lot of the legwork going in. You have to really, it really, we're not blank slates. It really helps if you're bringing something to the table. If you come to the table saying, hey, I want to experience the Christian God. And you might pray beforehand. I've done that. I was in a study, a clinical psilocybin study. And I absolutely prayed beforehand that God would give me a fuller revelation of ultimate love. So you prepare yourself, you know, you do the hard work. And then after the experience, you do more hard work. It's not like a magic bullet at all, but it can be a very powerful tool. 
Can you lay out a bit more what your experience was, if you don't mind? Yeah. So I signed up when I first started doing this research, I signed up for a study on um, sort of like the meaning making power of psychedelics. And I have to tell you, uh, it was a very challenging experience and it was one of the best experiences of my life. The hardest part of psychedelics is you have to let go. I mean, there's sort of the mantra is trust, let go and be open. And uh, the first like half of that trip for me was just pushing through resistance to letting go. I'm a perfectionist and achievement oriented control freak. I love to have, uh, I love to not lose control of my mind. Uh, I like to direct my experiences in particular ways. And that does not work in psychedelics. You really have to trust and you have to let go and you can't be afraid of the darkness. And I experienced a lot of darkness. I had a lot of pain. I had a lot of alienation and isolation to work through. I had a lot of I mean, the core of my experience was one of being held by love, held by the universe, held by God, I would say, and being invited to be a part of humanity and a part of that divine love story. But it was a brutal experience of spiritual alienation at the beginning. So it's not for the faint of heart. But I will say that those experiences, you know, experiences on psychedelics, they stick with you. I mean, it's not like being drunk or something where you have like a high and then you uh, like kind of hate yourself the next day. It's more like you have insights into who you are and what's possible for you and what you kind of the direction you need to go. And they're very lucid insights. And then you take those with you and you work on them and you develop them. So I've, I've changed a lot of how I relate to other people, kind of compassion, I think, for my own faults, my own weaknesses, the things I don't like about myself. Like, I've really kind of encountered new levels of grace and empathy for other people, I think, since since uh, encountering psychedelics. And I think the other thing I would say that, for you know, going back to sort of my lack of experience of God in the past is that you do get this firsthand experience in these trips of what is possible for you. So for so long, I thought it was not possible for me to believe in a God worth calling God. And a God that was loving and personal in any meaningful way. And psychedelics helped me get a firsthand experience, not just head knowledge, not just sort of some rational understanding of what divine human interaction looks like, but a real a real personal sense of what it felt like to know God's love. Could you take a couple of minutes just to expound on that, maybe in the broader picture of how has your studies within the cognitive science of religion impacted your own religious belief? How has it shaped it, challenged it, changed it, enhanced it? So again, all of my research started from a place of total lack of experience of God. My entire childhood, I was like, what is wrong with me? I have such an acute spiritual sensitivity. I want nothing more than to be like in love with God and to do God's will in the world. I want to be plugged into a sort of divine loving narrative. And I could never access it as real. And so I was like this like secret closet agnostic slash atheist for so long. And it was so shaming and alienating. And that's why I started studying the brain sciences, the mind sciences and philosophy and theology, trying to make sense of all of this. And in the, in the last few years, I've really started focusing on the spiritual but not religious crowd in particular. Because what I found is that amongst the spiritual but not religious, so people who have left traditional religion or who have never been in a religion but long for something truly deep and meaningful in the world, you have a lot of people for whom the sort of easy traditional answers and communities just don't work. And that was where I found myself too. And I started really examining what was working for them and not working for them. And that's when I started bringing back in the cognitive science of religion, research on psychedelics, other research on other forms of spirituality uh, and spiritual technologies, and trying to examine, try to really understand the people who couldn't claim a home in traditional religion, but were not willing to give up on a normative, robust commitment to something spiritual about the world. It's sort of this perfect marriage for me of cognitive science of religion and sort of my own spiritual longings and desires. Not too long ago, uh, I came across this fantastic article that I'm using a lot right now, written by Tim Shriver and Tara Isabella Burton. Uh, it's called Spiritual Realism in a Divided America. And so this term spiritual realism, I think, is the perfect term to describe not only like where I am, but also the sort of work I want to do in the world. So the way they use it and the way I use it is the spiritual realism, spiritual realism is about recognizing that spiritual yearning, longing, desire, and commitment is a brute fact about what it means to be human. It's one of the most human things about us. 
that we have a hunger for purpose. We have a desire for community. And it's not enough to just do that in this sort of way that cuts out the possibility of transcendence, the possibility of an ultimate reality, a God that is in some way relational, in some way in connection with humanity and the rest of the natural world. So my work recently has been sort of taking the spiritual yearning itself, spiritual hunger itself, as one of the most real things about humanity. And it doesn't, like that kind of commitment to treating our spiritual longings as real doesn't require any particular doctrinal commitment. It doesn't require you to sign up to any metaphysical belief or any religion, but it's a great starting point. And it allows you to sort of like build a robust spiritual life from the ground up. So cognitive science of religion says anything. It's that to be human is in some way to be spiritual or religious. And that is what I want to cultivate and work with going forward. And so it's directly impacted my own life in the sorts of spiritual technologies I seek out, the sorts of friends I invest in. I can actually say that I am, I see more hope for real belief now in a God worth calling God than I have for almost my entire life. And certainly my entire life in the Southern Baptist church that I came from. <laughs> and it's really through looking at these people who, for whom it doesn't come easy, the spiritual, but not religious, those who have the spiritual yearning that cognitive science of religion talks about, but they are trying to build something with a lot of hard work and seeing where it goes. Well, Sarah, I think we could keep talking with you for days about this. This is absolutely fascinating. We're just touching the surface, but I think you've given us, myself certainly, a lot to think about. Uh, that's positive and encouraging and, you know, just another step that we're all looking for, I think, to make sense of our religious experience in light of the bigger world around us and not just narrow, isolated, insulated kinds of contexts that we sometimes explore our religious faith in. So I want to thank you for coming and for uh, spending some time with us. This has been absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's my pleasure, and I really appreciate all the work that you guys do. Thank you so much. And now for Quiet Time with Pete and Jared. All right, well, Jared, Sarah said of religious belief, and I am quoting her, it's important that your emotions and your relational experiences with God and others are being activated. Those things make belief stronger. So how does that resonate with you now? I think it's part of a, a theme that we've talked about many times on here, and that is growing up in a religious tradition. Well, it's interesting because I had this bifurcated experience. On the one hand, I grew up charismatic, mm -hmm. where it was the pinnacle of spiritual experience was the emotional experience. And on the other hand, I later on was reformed and in these other camps where emotional expression was like right. a sign of immaturity. Verboten. Like yeah. that we don't do that. Right. And so I liked this idea of what Sarah said of belief, because again, in the more reformed camp I grew up in, belief was the most important thing and emotion was shunned. And in my charismatic upbringing, emotion was what was highlighted and belief was downplayed. Mm -hmm. And what I hear Sarah saying is we, we're not robots that can be compartmentalized in that way. It is, we've learned through this research that our emotions play a part in our belief. Mm -hmm. It is not a merely intellectual exercise. Right. And I have found that to be very true. It's similar to the idea of do we believe our way into new ways of acting or do we act our ways into new way of believing? And I think they are connected and mm -hmm. we have to see it more holistically. And I see that now with belief and emotion. They go together They're because they're a part of us and we are one thing. We are not these divided things. And so I appreciate that because I find that in my life a lot where my emotions deepen my convictions. They push me toward ways of acting out my beliefs. They deepen those beliefs. And mm -hmm. so it, it is this cycle that is all connected. What about well, you? Well, I mean, it's it's been said, right, that we're not rational beings with emotions. We're emotional beings. We're, I guess, the reason goes along for the ride at mm -hmm. some point. So I think to, to draw on the importance of that is, I mean, we've, like you said, we've talked about this. In fact, I remember people letting you in here on the behind the scenes stuff before we even, way before the podcast itself, you and I were talking about how the emotional impact of our theology is really discussed. And that's certainly true in our 
let's say our, the the Calvinist iteration of our faith right. journey, it may also be true of charis of, of your charismatic background, right? Because it's only the emotions, right? You're not really combining them right. too much with let's they're say rigorous still, intellectual thinking. They're still distinct, right? They're still distinct, and so you know I appreciate that very much what you said. And as far as me. Yeah, it, it very much resonates with me, the emotional side of this, because, I mean, the older I get, the more I think about this stuff. It's like, what leaves you connected with yourself more? And the mind is a part of that. But if I have thoughts that are pleasing and pleasant, well, they're pleasing and they're pleasant, and those are emotional words, mm-hmm. right? And no one has no one has thoughts that are just there. They It's like, oh, Wow. You're excited about it, right? So so those two things, I think I've been much more conscious personally about the inevitability of those two things appearing at the same time and, and, and naming it for what it is and allowing it to happen. And it's going to sound arrogant, but I think it's... Not us. It, it's not, that's not my intention here. And that is, I think we live in a culture that overemphasizes the intellect, mm-hmm. the belief, the be smart. And whenever you say things like the older I get, it reminds me of my story too. And I think it, it resonates, I think for both of us that we went down that path. Mm-hmm. We were in a hyper intellectualized Christian tradition mm-hmm. and we were both pretty smart in that tradition. Mm-hmm. And just, I almost want to say like, believe us when we tell you, yeah, it's not as great as it's cracked up to be. It doesn't lead to the thing that you think it's going to. No. And now we have to double back. We, or in some ways, I think of like we got to the end of that trail a little bit and found it wanting. We're gonna have and to go all the way up to the beginning, y- drag the emotion y- back exactly. with us. <laughs> we're doubling back now and saying, "Oh," and 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 I can't help but think about this in a gendered way. It's almost like that. Th- this was the emphasis in some ways in the the book I wrote, "Love Matters More," of saying I had to go back and realize these feminine voices in the church and the tradition mm-hmm. they were onto something. And I just think a lot of other people, how they express their faith differently, they're sort of still trying to, the gold standard is still intellectualizing it. Right. And it's like, I want to say like, no, 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 like mm-hmm. the, it's the wrong gold standard. Mm-hmm. We have to go back and start integrating all of these expressions. It's a modernist standard, right? Wouldn't right. you say? Back yeah. to your making of the modern mindset sure. stuff that you've done. So, And I appreciate Sarah, who I think it's fair to say she had a similar kind of trajectory yeah. in that highly intellectualized and trying to feel God, right? The, yeah. the emotional side of I mean, yeah. you know, who, and kind who of doesn't want that. that at the end of the mm-hmm. day, right? So, mm-hmm. but having a lot of difficulty in finding her own way through that. But yeah. that's that's sort of a an occupational hazard, I think, of people who study this stuff when God is more objectified and you're supposed to keep your emotions to the side. Now, of course, you know, in, in, in your other iteration of your life, the charismatic side, right? I'm not sure. I, I mean, this is really a blanket statement to say you have Oral Roberts University, of course, but is that intellectual path really valued as much where you would even see the problem? And probably right. on the ground, probably not as much right. as opposed to, let's say, your average Calvinist church, yep. right? Where this is really the heart and soul of things. And and losing either one is is a bit of a problem, yeah. I think. Well, know? tied to that, you know, Sarah talked about these spiritual technologies as being stuff in the world that enhances our spiritual experiences. I, I appreciate that she said we are almost always emotionally manipulated because if we use the word manipulation as just saying a way to enhance, direct, or shift our emotion mm-hmm. – I feel like we're doing that all the time with all kinds of stuff. You're saying we're manipulating ourselves. Yeah, right. And, and we're, we're being an, manipulated too. Yes, yeah, so right. we're putting ourselves in situations right. where that's kind of the goal. So my question for you is, what have you found as spiritual technologies, the things that enhance those spiritual experiences? Because again, you know, in the context of Sarah, she was just talking about how she didn't have a lot of that growing right. up. It didn't come right. naturally to her. So she's almost like she's honed in on this idea of spiritual technologies because it was useful for her. Right. Have right. you found things that are useful for you? Well, I, th- I think I will say one thing that I guess about 12 years ago or so, I started actually seeking out liturgical contexts because I was tired of doing all the thinking. 
<laughs> you right. know, and, and so, but that's, that is, you know, by, that's by good. Sarah's definition, a spiritual technology, which is a different way of approaching being in God's presence than, you know, a 45 minute sermon and a lot of scripture songs. It's, it's a different way of doing things, which has been meaningful to me. And I like the result of that. And that is a spiritual technology. Mm-hmm. It's funny, the thing that came to mind when I asked myself this question wasn't what I do, but what I stopped doing. Mm. And it's easy to get caught up in the world of, I think, well-intentioned people who things that are spiritual technologies for them, then try to universalize that and objectivize it. And so one thing I had to get over, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, is my guilt and shame over like nature is not a spiritual technology for me. Right. right. And so there's a, like this whole like, Oh, I oh that's to for me too, by get the way, out in yeah. nature and, yeah. you know, go camping and just mm-hmm. being in the wild. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that is not, but I always mm-hmm. pretended it because it seemed like that's like what you're supposed to do when you're, well, of, you are supposed to do it. Yeah. Get on with it. Come on. Exactly. Figure it out. Thanks. Thanks for helping me get over my shame and guilt. <laughs> I appreciate that. I hate nature. So <laughs> nature does nothing for me. I, I respect it and I love it, but it's not one of these things that it's enhances not, my spiritual right, experiences. Right. It is much more cultural for me. Music is right. a spiritual technology for me, hundred mm-hmm. percent. And well, I mean, not necessarily churchy music, right? Right. Exactly. Right. Yes. Yeah, specifically, probably not, mm-hmm. because again, I grew up in a a world where there's some baggage associated right, exactly with right. that. Yeah. Other kinds kinds of music based on my mood and based mm-hmm. on what I am like looking for. And so I just think it's important too that we acknowledge and we can be radically honest with ourselves mm-hmm. and not fall into the trap. Again, growing up charismatic in my tradition, there were a set of things that enhanced your emotion and the spiritual experience that were legitimate. And there were those that were not. Mm-hmm. There was a sacred secular divide specifically within a tradition and I, I think I have an allergic reaction right. to that idea. And just to remind everyone, you know, th- this this conversation came out of Sarah's study of the cognitive science of religion, right? right? So this this isn't just winging it. It's actually yeah. thinking about how our brain works with respect to God and to embrace that whole-bodied faith, which, which she mentioned as well, which is very much connected to these spiritual technologies and the emotions and things like that. I think so. it's a great way to end this episode is that reminder of the embodiment. I think that's what ties all of what we've mm-hmm. just been talking right. together is thinking about our faith more holistically. Right. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. In addition, you can let us know what you thought about the episode by emailing us at info at thebiblefornormalpeople.com. Thanks for listening to Faith for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, The Bible for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Natalie Wyand, Stephen Henning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schau. 